Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. It's a lot easier to assume that children see things as we do and to get angry at them immediately for what they do. It takes a willingness to understand that children really don't see the world as we do and be willing to see it from their eyes. Some strategies for understanding children and protecting them from the harsh influences of our society. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The obstacle course of growing up requires children to navigate their own development in the context of family relationships and influences of the broader society around them. Childhood is always a challenge, but especially so now, says Lesley University education professor Nancy Carlson-Page. There are many indicators, I think, of, of unhappiness. We see certainly more children with behavior problems in school and higher levels of anxiety and stress. You know, um, preschoolers are now being expelled from school at three times the rate of children from um, K to 12 schools. Why are preschoolers being expelled? Well, people are trying to understand this, but because they're acting out, because their behaviors are... Um, are something that the schools don't feel they can manage. And this is an increase? Yes, it's a big increase, last five years or so. So I think there are indicators that children are experiencing stress and unhappiness. <laughs> All kids let off steam while playing. Do I need a spider? But some children today seem to be carrying a burden that's especially heavy. The sources of this condition and some solutions are discussed in Nancy Carlson Page's provocative book, Taking Back Childhood, Helping Your Kids Thrive in a Fast-Paced, Media-Saturated, Violence-Filled World. In general, children have a sped-up life today. They're scheduled more than children ever were in the past. They're involved in more adult organized activities ever than in the past. Or if they're not, they're spending more time indoors, less time in play, and more time consuming media, often media that is um, violent in nature and more sexualized than they should be seeing. They're having less time in social relationships with other children, less time with their parents, less Decompression time, that's very important. Less time to really relax and let down and have unstructured moments that they determine. Um, they're more organized by adults for more hours of the day. It's just that wall-to-wall -wall scheduling? Yes, wall-to-wall -wall scheduling is part of it, but we also have millions of children who are going home because their parents are working to an empty house or maybe they're with a teenage sibling or an older child in the family and they're watching inappropriate media. They're watching media too many hours of it in the first place, but a lot of the content of the media is giving them messages that are 
too difficult to understand for their ages. Nobody's monitoring it. It's very scary. I, I was in a, um, in a, visiting a preschool classroom, four-year-olds, where um, the teacher told me one little boy was seeing the movie Matrix over and over again because he had an older sibling who came home with him after school. And the parents both worked, as the majority of parents do. And, um, the, and the teenage sister was watching Matrix, and so the little boy was seeing it multiple times and bringing the anxiety and fear and confusion created by seeing that into the classroom. I'm going to enjoy watching you die, Mr. Anderson. It's a very violent movie, which is R-rated. It's adult content, it's not content for children. And when children see adult content in the media, which they see too, way too much of, part of that problem is we don't have decent ratings to protect children or ways to inform parents, and we also have deliberate marketing to young children of, of older content-rated movies. Those are very unethical practices that go on in the society and confuse parents and ultimately hurt children. And so what are the consequences to the kids? They're exposed to images that are hyper-violent, hyper-sexualized. What effect does it have? Well, in the book, I, I quote a lot of different studies, and, and some of the studies relating to this show us that, first of all, that parents don't often know that content children have seen worries them as much as it does. Um, when children see um, unsuitable content or inappropriate content, violent or sexualized content that they can't make sense of, they're, they may be confused, they may be scared, they, they may feel very insecure and fearful. What do you mean they can't make sense of it? Well, if they see, let's say, a scene, a, a violent scene in a movie um, where, say, an adults get into a fight and someone kills another person with a knife and there's blood and there's, you know, suffering or... You know, this is really scary material for a child. Children base their what they know on what they can see. Young children don't understand the more subtle aspects of plot and character and the things when we look at a violent movie, we have a much broader context for understanding the violence we see. Um, so we can put it in its place, if you will. It's often difficult for us adults to look at um, violence also, but we have a much better um, ability to put it in a larger context. So what skills of filtering that out do children lack? Right. Well, actually, those are capacities of cognitive development. Children don't see the world the way adults do. They see it qualitatively differently and at different ages. And too often, I think, there's been a confusion of boundaries between who we are as adults and how we understand children a confusion between adults and children, so that some of what's happening in children's lives happens because we as a collective society of adults don't protect children as a special, precious group of human beings who need to be looked after in, in unique ways based on who they are as a special group. Children who are from the ages three, four, five, and six, they see the world in a very unique way, not at all logically the way we adults do. 
but they, they can put ideas together that don't belong together and think something caused something else. A four-year-old child can think that the sun moves across the sky following her, or um, a child can think because he acted badly on the night his father left um, the house that he caused his parents to separate that he was the cause of it. There's a kind of omnipotent thinking we see with children. There was a little boy who uh, one of my graduate students told me was in her um, preschool, and he, a four-year-old, who she noticed when they had the snack of milk and crackers every day that he ate the crackers, but he never drank the milk. And she went over to him one day in the spring, and she said, Nathan, I noticed that you never drink the milk. And he said, well, if I drink the milk, the fire alarm will go off. And she realized then that on the first day of school, there had been this um, unplanned fire drill the teachers hadn't known of and couldn't prepare the children. He was sipping his milk when that alarm went off. It scared all the kids. They had to go outside and didn't know what was going on. But he believed for that school year that he was the cause of the alarm going off. Yeah, that's a, that's a typical kind of thinking of ch- young children. The capacity to understand which dots should be connected and which should not comes later in a child's cognitive growth. This explains why it's easy for some kids to get overwhelmed by the onslaught of violent scenes which they're exposed to through media. Nancy Carlson Page. When children look at violent imagery, they tend to see it much more as individual slides on a screen rather than a coherent story and a whole with an understanding of underlying motives and cause and effect, so that what the graphic images that they see impact them differently and much more profoundly than, than they impact us, so that they may be scared for weeks or months or even years, some studies show, of things that they've seen, images that they've seen that are violent or scary. The graphic nature of it is more impactful to them it, it's, it's more, it, it influences their perception in a different way and usually a greater way. And if there's anything that the technology of modern media does well, it's present images graphically. Yeah. Yes. And then on top of it, I'm saying that not only that is a problem, but that children have less opportunity today to process the scary things they've seen. They have fewer hours in play, and of course one very therapeutic aspect of play is that children do play out things that have scared them or worried them. They get to work through um, any kind of experiences that might have been scary. So play is a really valuable tool for children, but they have much less of it. But also play um, generates problem-solving, creative thinking, and creativity. So all of these qualities are, are hurt by, by a diminishing play life for children. talking with author Nancy Carlson Page, a professor of education at Lesley University. In addition to her scholarship, Nancy's had a personal opportunity to consider the impact of media. Her son is Academy Award-winning actor Matt Damon. 
You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, check our website, humanmedia.org. In your book, Taking Back Childhood, you quoted one expert who said that exposing children to violent images is similar in its impact to physical abuse or living in a war zone. So what does that do to the child? Yes, I included that quote from Dr. Alvin Poussaint because um, he's highlighting something very important there for adults to understand, and that is that children do not clearly distinguish between fantasy and reality when they're young. And um, this is a very important topic because it takes years for children to clearly establish that boundary between what's real and what's not real. And um, so that they may um, be scared by something they've seen in a way that you and I wouldn't because we know it's just pretend. I have many um, memories of my grandsons, Jackson and Miles, and how they confuse fantasy and reality in the early years, and my own sons and all the children I know. So for Miles, he had seen the, quote, bad guy of Spider-Man, unquote, on a TV show at someone's house and that he, it scared him, and so he got up and punched the TV to make it go away. He said he was scared that um, the bad guy would come out of the TV. So that's an example of how children don't understand that that's a pretend character, how the character was created, how it was made into a, you know, a broadcast and put on TV for children to see. No, for him, that, that's a real character who may come out of that box that's in someone's living room. There are many ways that children confuse fantasy and reality that make the impact of everything they experience potentially vivid and meaningful in ways that um, don't exist for us as adults. And in the process of human development, at what age do children start to put together the pieces and understand that image in that box called the television is not real? It happens gradually over the age, across the ages of six, seven, and eight. This is connected to why the American Psychological Association has recommended that there be no advertising to children under the age of eight. It smells like peanut butter cookies. Tastes like them too, but it's a breakfast cereal. I'm coming for delicious new peanut butter. How concerned do you think uh, parents are about the effect of this environment on their children. What, what do you hear about this from parents? What I hear from parents, um, and I interviewed many, uh, uh, many parents for the book, I heard across the board concern about these influences. Um, I asked some parents in tremendous detail and others um, in less detail what they thought about um, these influences in society today, and I um, heard across the board concern that there is too much violence in media that their children are seeing. And by the way, this is um, supported by research, too, that parents, a vast majority of parents are concerned about violence in children's uh, media or the violence that children see in the media, um, about sexualization in the media, they're concerned about commercialization and the influence of commercial, of marketing on children. So how in this atmosphere can parents create the kind of childhood for their children 
in which kids would feel safe? Well, regarding uh, play, which we've been talking about so far, um, we want to help parents, um, help children create the most um, imaginative and child-centered play that they can. So um, learning more about what kinds of toys and props foster that can be very helpful to parents. Knowing how to make choices in toy stores, which mostly these days push kind of single-purpose, very def highly defined toys, um, using much more generic toys, blocks and Play-Doh and generic baby dolls instead of Bratz dolls and dolls that um, are linked with media or are very defined. Um, these are also um, wonderful ways to encourage healthy play, as well as reading stories to children that touch their developmental needs um, in, a, in a deeper way that help them play out um, the themes that are inside of them and that want to get expressed at their age, rather than a content that's more adult-oriented and tends to confuse children. But I, I would believe as a child development person that it would never be a positive thing to put a young child in front of a, a screen because young children are developing from sensory motor experience in the first two years of life. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends no screen time before the age of two because it could hamper brain development, and I agree with them. Because the way children... So, so the TV is off? The TV is off, Yeah. Brains are developing so rapidly in the first two years, and they're developing as a result of experience, first-hand experience, manipulating objects and moving in space. And there's no evidence at this point that looking at a screen is, um, is beneficial to brain development and is probably harmful. And what about after age two? After age two... Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics advisory is one hour a day of, of, of screen time. Um, and I think that's a good standard to try to keep to. Drug dealers, gunshots at night, constant threats. I had my front window broken. I had the back window of my car broken in. I had a camera stolen off my house. Um, it was routinely threatened as I was walking around the neighborhood with my dog. When children see and hear frightening things from the media about our dangerous world, what should parents say? I think the best thing is not to say, but to practice active listening, which is something um, I'm recommending we adults do as much as possible, which is... Um, sitting with children and saying less and listening more. And listening with an open heart and an open mind, that is not easy because we have so many agendas as parents. We have to get kids organized for school and figure out what they're wearing and where are their shoes. We have so many agendas on our mind. It's very difficult to pause and listen to children and to listen without our minds cluttered with all the things we have to do and take care of. This is really uh, compassionate, open-hearted, open-minded listening. And you can practice this with children for 30 seconds or for one minute. Just briefly, if you sit in their presence and feel the presence between you and within yourself and let them talk to you um, and listen as openly as you're capable of to what they have to say, that is the best way to help children 
uh, begin to process their, their lives and their experiences, including everything they've experienced and scary things in the media or whatever. to the delicate consciousness of a child often requires adults to patiently shift their focus. It can be hard as many parents struggle to keep up with the velocity of contemporary life. That's why, says Professor Nancy Carlson Page, adults sometimes resort to coercion when trying to get a child to behave. But in the process, she says, valuable opportunities for learning may be lost. One example that comes to mind is uh, a parent who called me because her little boy, Curtis, was uh, three, three years old, was at his family daycare center, and he was riding a tricycle. And uh, he bumped into another child when he was on the tricycle. And so the um, teacher came over and told Curtis to take a time out and go sit on the stairs. And after a little while, she let him get back on the tricycle, and he drove it right into this little girl named Madeline. And, um, and so the teacher made him go sit for a longer time on the stairs and said he couldn't ride a tricycle anymore. That approach of, of, of having children take a time out is something very popular among parents today, and it's, it's been popularized by TV shows like Nanny 911, you know, the naughty chair and time out. And um, it, it's a punishment-oriented uh, approach to children's behavior. Rather than thinking about Curtis as a three-year-old, and what, what does he know? Okay, Curtis really doesn't fully understand because children don't logically connect cause and effect when they're three. That when he drives into another child, he's going to hurt them. We can help him um, learn that much more effectively if we stop and take Curtis over to the child that he bumped into and help them talk to each other. So that you might say to Curtis, look look at Madeline, you see how um, she got hurt. Madeline, is there something you want to tell Curtis about what that felt like when he drove into you? And then um, you might say, Curtis, is there something you want to say to Madeline? So that you're helping him actually build an understanding of... Um, of his own behavior and its impact on somebody else by getting the kids to talk to each other and helping him see firsthand the effects of his actions. So that presumes the child is not bad but doesn't understand. They don't understand, as we do, that Madeline is going to get hurt when, when you drive your bike into her. That's exactly what children are building an understanding of at that age, and that's what they need our help um, to do. So we, we can help them by showing them in ways that make sense to them um, how their actions affect others. In, in little incremental ways, we can help them see how they influence each other in a family, how a sibling feels when you say, say um, an insult to the sibling by pointing out to a child, you see your brother's face, you know, he's sad. Why does he feel that way? And you help a child to understand, oh, it's because I called him a jerk. Because we don't want to assume that children know what we know. It's taken us many, many years as adults to build this understanding, and it builds incrementally over time through experience. 
So how can children be taught to be caring and, and more empathetic to fill in the gap that they may not fully understand yet? Well, the first way we help children be more caring is to open up the spaces where it's possible to help them be more caring. And we can do that in a lot of ways. Um, one is by being present with them in times of tension and not reacting so quickly uh, from our own reaction. Be present with them in times of tension and not reacting. Yeah. How does a parent do that? It's very challenging <laughs> because it means uh, suspending our own reaction for um, a moment and reflecting on how we use our power with children. I'm thinking of all of the moments I've had with my own grandchildren, many, many moments, and I don't perceive them as power struggles. I perceive them as those children trying to feel strong and secure in a threatening world and needing my help to do it. I think we can get on the side of children in, in many, many situations and, and help them. I'm thinking of an example with my grandson Jack when he was three and he cut his toe. He was over here at our house. And he came in and there was quite a bit of blood coming out of his big toe. And I went into the bathroom to get a washcloth and some, um, some bacterial ointment. And when I came into the living room and the blood is coming down and he saw me with the these tools in my hand, he starts screaming, no, 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 don't touch it. He's screaming in fear. He's screaming in fear because the blood scared him. And me with these things in my hand, the big powerful adult scared him. So I could have had a, I could have set it up as a power, as a power struggle or an adversarial relation where I might've said, Jack, I have to put these on your toe. But that's not, my goal isn't to just get those things on Jack's toe. It's also to build our relationship, build trust between us, and also support his very, very early budding sense of empowerment and capability. So I said, Jack, your toe is bleeding, and um, we, I have the cloth and ointment here. What, how are we going to get these on your toe? Because we have to, we, I'm saying, we have to clean your toe and put the ointment on. What are we going to do? And he repeated, no, no, don't touch it. And I said, I won't touch it. But how are we going to get your toe cleaned off and the ointment put on? The ointment doesn't hurt, I pointed out. And he quietly took the cloth and took the ointment in his own hands. And he washed his toe and he put the ointment on. He figured out what to do in that situation, but I had de-escalated the conflict, if you will, by saying, what are we going to do? I'm making it a problem that we're looking at together. The bloody toe is the problem, Jack, not our relationship, but we have to do something about the bloody toe. What are we going to do? He became a master surgeon, I suppose, yes, later did. in life. Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll see. Lesley University education professor Nancy Carlson Page is author of Taking Back Childhood. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. 
Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck and the Waldorf School in Lexington, Massachusetts. The program is presented by Human Media in association with the Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Short Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment with Nancy Carlson Page is Humankind Program number 125. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts or another podcast service. It goes a long way in helping people find the Humankind series. If you'd like additional content not available on our podcast, you can head over to our Patreon page where we release monthly episodes. Our focus is solutions, not just problems. You'll also hear some staff picks from our archive including conversations with people like a young Joe Biden, Ken Burns, and Mr. Rogers. Finally, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to humankindpodcast.org and choose how you can help at the top of our homepage. That's humankindpodcast.org. Thanks.